morning. Glad that you're all here to worship with us this morning, uh, both in person and on the live stream. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of Galatians. We're still in the early stages of developing our sermon series, going verse by verse through the book of Galatians. And today we're going to do part two of the first two verses. This is God's word. May we hear it and receive it as such. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we come here today, we do so with a singular purpose, that we might know and rest in you, that you would receive our prayers and our praises, and that you would speak to us, transforming us, that we would hear your voice amidst all the noise in this world, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes that we might see, that you would give us hearts that are open to all that you have for us. Father, come. Come and meet with your people. That you would be glorified. That we would be changed. We ask you to do this in our Lord's name. Our mediator's name. The only name given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus' name. It's in his name. According to his life and death and resurrection that we enter boldly into your throne room. Knowing you bid us come. Come we do. And all God's people agree. You guys ever go on a retreat, sign up for a, a big group situation where people will be coming from different places, different groups of people, different groups coming together, and inevitably, the room becomes polarized in an instant. It becomes polarized because some of you like something, and some of you can't stand that thing that others like. Are you ready? We're going to polarize the room this morning. Icebreakers. Who loves icebreakers? Oh, wow. All right. Those of us, and I am included, who love icebreakers, let's get a little hooting and hollering in here. Woo! Those of you who live with us, we thank you. Those of you who journey and, and seek to be known by those people like us who love icebreakers, love getting to know new people, love learning little factoids and insights. My mom taught me the value of understanding the people that you are with in such a way that you can connect them to something that will help them, aid them, or someone that they can enjoy those things with. 
Fundamentally, networking with other people does include a willingness to listen, a willingness to engage and understand the people around you. I imagine, though I'm not one of you, that it is hard in those icebreaker games because it feels phony to you that we're getting very little relevant information about somebody and their story, and instead we're learning factoids about how they want to present themselves. What word best describes you? Let's play two truths and a lie. I think for many, the objection is, just feels kind of phony, kind of fake. How could anyone be summed up in one word? How could having one animal as your Patronus make you (laughs) better understood by those around you as if Hufflepuff isn't enough to tell us all we need to know about you? Those are Harry Potter references. But I think there's a fundamental sense in which when we come to an icebreaker game or when we're meeting somebody for the first time, the in-laws perhaps, we're asking the question, who am I, who are you, and are we going to be okay? Who are you? Who am I? And, and what does it mean for us to be in relationship? Five-minute relationship, weekend, small group relationship, lifetime together. Who are you is the first part of this. And the second, how do you know who you are? How do you know that's the right word, the right animal, the right answer, the right truths, the correct lie? Who are you? And how do you know? What's the ground of that assertion? What are you basing that question's answer upon? We turn our eyes here to Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. Note that the, there are many churches here, all of whom were planted by Paul. He preached the gospel to places that the name of Jesus was not yet worshipped or understood. As Paul writes to these churches, he writes as one who intimately knows them. He built them by God's grace and power. He taught them from the scripture about what was true concerning him. So when we come to the beginning of this letter, it's weird. Because in one sense, we see Paul doing something akin to introducing himself. Everybody's favorite moment. Tell us a little something about you. Though this one is a little different. If you read all 13 letters that Paul gave us in the New Testament, almost half by number, not volume, of the books of the New Testament, this one is a little less introductory about himself 
and much more jumping into the middle of the conflict. And the conflict is that these churches have been infiltrated from outside by false teachers. What we will soon discover to be a non-gospel, not good news. There is only one good news. But how does Paul introduce himself? Well, we see him give his name first. This is fairly common in their day. But then the first descriptor he uses is an apostle. And so what that means is, of course, as we saw last week first, that he is a man with a message. It's the first relevant introduction that the apostle Paul, number one, is a man with a message. Number two, that he is a man under authority. He is not claiming to be his own authority. There is a source of his authority. And third, we saw that the Apostle Paul was a man who was willing to say no. He was a man willing to say not. You follow this in the Greek You have Paul, an apostle, and then the third word in the Greek is not. That didn't take long. And in fact, you'll discover that this letter is filled with not. It's filled with no. It's filled with wrong. It's also filled with true, yes, good, essential. The Apostle Paul is a man willing to do that which is most unpopular in our day. I gave you the quote quote last week from Machen. I'll give it to you again so that we have it clear in our minds. Machen says, all definition is by way of exclusion. You cannot possibly say clearly what a thing is without contrasting it with what it is not. I think that in our day, we don't say no enough. Certainly that's true of our time usage or our busy schedules and lives, but I don't mean it in that sense. When we come to think about what it means that the Apostle Paul was a man who was willing to say no and not, we then need to see the places in our lives where we don't want to draw distinction for the imitation of peace. I think most of us in our day, in our age, decidedly believe that peace is the absence of conflict. That peace is when everybody is civil, no war. But what happens when in that civility, we lose the very things that are most precious through the avenues of vagueness or silence? We turn truth into virtue and not necessity. The gospel is lost 
It's forsaken. If all we offer are virtues, all of humanity can offer virtues. And different cultures can decide on different ones. But virtue and the idea that God is pleased with you, the more you act in line with these virtues, is not the gospel. That is not new, good news. It's terrible news. It's terrible news because it means that your salvation is contingent on your own efforts. You do not want a meritorious salvation. That is what we saw last week. So this week, let's continue. Number four is that Paul is also a man with authority. He's not just a man under authority. He is a man possessing authority. And this is embodied and understood in the simple idea that he is an apostle. An apostle is one who is sent. One who is sent. Well, if you have been sent, then it means two things. One, you have been sent by someone and you have been sent to do something. Sent by someone and sent to do something. So why is the Apostle Paul called an apostle? He's called that because he was given special authority to speak in Christ's name for the guidance of the church. That's the what of his calling. He was given special authority to speak in Christ's name for the guidance of the church. In other words, if Paul has been sent as an emissary, then someone has sent him. Who is that someone? Paul gives us the beginning of that answer. But it's something we will easily roll our eyes past. Our familiarity with these truths can sometimes be an obstacle or a disservice to understanding the depths of their significance. If Paul has been sent as an emissary, then God has sent him. The king has called and commissioned Paul as an apostle. This is the Bible's way of saying that as an apostle, Paul is given authority. Does Paul have the same authority on earth that Jesus had? That Jesus still has? No, there's a direct but limited authority that the Apostle Paul has been given. He was called and appointed, commissioned if you prefer, by God to do this guiding work, this teaching and guarding for the benefit of the church. And he speaks in God's name. And he does so because he has ecclesiastical authority. That's a fancy word 
meaning church. The Greek word ecclesia is the church. What kind of authority does Paul have? He has the authority that ministers have. But more than that, he has apostolic authority. Let's see if I can break this down in a second. We'll do this more in a little bit. I have ministerial authority. Did you know that? That's not a surprise to most of you. In fact, I have it because you called me and the presbytery called me in agreement to lead and teach and guide this church. I have ecclesiastical authority. Can I arrest any of you and take you to jail? That's magisterial authority. That's civil authority. And I don't possess it, and I'm glad I don't. So Paul has been given an authority, and it is absolutely ministerial in nature. It's ecclesiastical nature. But it is also apostolic in the sense that he writes Scripture. By God's moving Holy Spirit, he authors in God's name what is true. I echo. You really want to know my heart? It's all I ever want to be. I want to be an echo of the truth. I want to say what other people have said in a compelling way for you to understand. I do not want to give you new ideas. New ideas should not be trusted to a degree. The Apostle Paul is different than I because he is an apostle and I am a pastor, a shepherd. The speaking in Christ's name is unique by the apostles according to their calling. So not only is Paul a man with authority, he's also a man called and commissioned by the resurrected Christ. Go read Acts 9. Go and read and see. Behold the risen Christ encountering a man who's got a stack of unnamed warrants for arrest in his back pocket. If you don't know this story, it's unbelievable. The great persecutor of the early church is the Apostle Paul. He hated this perversion of monotheism that had sprung up inside the true religion of Judaism. Paul knew God, loved God, wanted to serve God. And there was this new rabbi who was doing all kinds of kooky, crazy things, telling everybody you got to drink his blood and eat his body as if cannibalism isn't prohibited in the law of God. Paul hates corruption of the truth, which is pretty ironic from our vantage point. The Apostle Paul 
at one time was given authority by the church, by Israel, by the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling government structure of the Jewish faith, to arrest Christians, to find those followers of the rabbi Jesus and drag them and imprison them and when fitting and approved of, kill them. So here's Paul doing what he thinks is God's work and he's got a stack of warrants in a satchel bag riding a donkey on his way to Damascus to go get more of those pesky Christians corrupting the true faith. And all of a sudden, as he's riding on a donkey with people with him who witness this moment, he is struck blind by a blinding light. It's awesome, that's phrase. The blinding light. And God puts somehow something like scales over his eyes. And he is no longer self-sufficient to go anywhere. To do hardly anything. And he spends three days in that blindness. But at the alpha point of that blindness, as soon as the light comes and he is struck down to the ground, he falls off the donkey and lands on his backside and he asks the killer question, who are you, Lord? Because he didn't have a physical answer. There's no naturalistic explanation for what sent him to the ground. And in that moment, it is the risen Christ who speaks to him. And Paul's mind, blown. Because God was changing his mind. This is what it means to be a believer, y'all. That God has given you a new mind. That you have literally a change of mind. A change of will. So Paul spends three days blind, pouring through the Bible. Did, I'm not sure you see the problem here. Paul, blind, is pouring through the Bible. All that he had memorized, all that he had studied, all that he had connected, in all of the, the networking of Scripture, those 39 books of the Old Testament, even blind, he knew it so well. Do you? Now you can say, hey, pastor, it's not fair. He only had 39. We got 27 more. Like, you're good. It's fine. You're fine. Ours are a lot smaller than those were. And then there's Romans and Hebrews. Paul's pouring through the scripture, trying to connect this Jesus he just met with the coming of the Messiah start to finish in the Old Testament. We know, of course, 
that he comes to faith. He comes to believe. This is a man who spent years killing Christians, killing them. He used all the lawful means at his disposal available to him to execute people who were, in his esteem, blaspheming God. There is one God. Jesus can't be God if there's one God. Or can there be? Paul comes to Christ in those three days. Seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of so many promises. He is a man called and commissioned by the resurrected Christ. That's why he talks about this doctrine of the resurrection in the third part of verse 1. Here it's weight altogether. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. It is the risen Christ that calls Paul. And it is the risen Christ who commissions Paul. Go read Acts 9 and you will see these things coming to life. What was the methodology that God Almighty used to call and commission Paul? For my musicians, I might ask the question, what is the instrumentation of the calling of Paul? Was there an intermediary? Did God call somebody who called somebody who called Paul? Did, did God call somebody to call Paul? No. There is no intermediary. There is no vehicle of instrumentation apart from the direct calling of Jesus Christ himself. Another way of saying this is that Paul, like those 500 or so that Paul tells the Corinthians about, Paul saw the resurrected Christ, here's the pun, with his own, yeah, like you want to say eyes, right? Like eyes. But like, he's blinded. Can you imagine a man as eloquent and educated as the Apostle Paul is, struggling through the difficulties of blindness? How many times do you think in Paul's life he looked at people who were disabled or suffering or victims of other people's sin and think those people got what they deserved? That it was a judgment of God upon those people. And then he's got to look in the mirror, pun intended, and ask himself, what did he do? To deserve this kind of judgment. Why is he blind? Is it his sin? Is it his parents' sin? Is it the sin of the Christians that they put hexes on him? Whose fault is this? My guess is in those three days, he turned that question around. Not only was this not somebody's fault, because it was negative, it was somebody's glory because it changed him. 
The one who has sight goes blind. Didn't Jesus say that in John 9 and the end when he's talking to the Pharisees like Paul who was a Pharisee? You don't think you need God because you're so educated and self-sufficient. You don't need God for comfort. You don't need God for food. So you get to take him off that throne and put yourself on it. Because clearly you did this for you. You determined who your parents were. You determined all the gifts that you were going to be given. You were given your stuff. No? Yes? Why do you have what you have? How did you come by it? Here's Paul, blind, having to wrestle with sin, self-sufficiency, judgmentalism, execution. Does Paul have blood on his hands as he would approach the throne room of God? He killed God's people viciously, using every smirmy way justice can squeeze to accomplish Paul's purpose. And here he is called directly by God into speaking in Christ's name for God as an emissary of God. But he did not call himself to this position. I am grateful for the way the the author of the book of Hebrews says this. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 4. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. In other words, he's talking here in the context of the priesthood ministry of Israel. And you couldn't just walk up and say, I think I'm supposed to be a priest. Can you make me a priest? Instead, God had designed a mechanism, a channel by which he would have priests. But they never called themselves. Beginning with Aaron and going forward, this was something that God does. God calls people to minister to him on their behalf of the people. You cannot call yourself into this work. And you did not call yourself into this work. This is what the author is reminding the people of God. That if they serve Jesus, if they serve the true and living God, they do so because they have been given the capacity to do that very thing. Nobody takes that honor for themselves. In other words... Therefore, the calling cannot be lawful in God's eyes, in God's economy, unless it proceeds from God himself. And this is one of the challenges to the whole situation in Corinth, the whole situation in Philippi, the whole situation in all these early churches that we love. That there are people who are claiming to speak for God without a calling from God and without a channel that came from God. It's one of the things I love about our denomination. 
The way we approach ordination has two central components. One is that I feel called by God. This is an internal calling. This is the way we talk about it. That someone who is called to preach and to minister in Christ's name does so because of an internal sense of calling. But we don't just start a church and become a pastor. Two other things have to happen in order to unite them with your sense of internal calling. And the first is you have to have an external calling from people who want you to shepherd them. And then the presbytery comes in and tests, examines that candidate to say, yes, we agree that this man has the calling, the ability, the fundamental understanding to lead you well. Not perfectly, y'all. <laughs> you don't have to spend much time with me to know I ain't perfect. But that's the external calling. It's this union between the presbytery who has ecclesiastical authority, the authority of the church, and the people who want to form a church. That's the external calling. And then I have this internal calling, and the three meet together. Two externals and one internal, and bang. When everybody agrees and confesses that this is a good idea, we form by ordination, a church. This is awesome. You can't just call yourself and be it. There are protections, guidance, a guardianship for God's church, his bride. And that's why if I get out of line, I start teaching crazy stuff, start doing crazy stuff. Y'all have an avenue to remove me. Because it's not about me. It is about the name of Jesus Christ. So part of what's happening in Galatians is that Paul is having to remind them who he is, whose he is, and what he was there to do. Paul was no second-rate apostle. This is what Paul is defending in this opening verse, that he is not a second-class apostle. And the, here's the critique. The critique that was going through these churches was, well, Paul never actually hung with Jesus. Peter and the boys, yeah, they spent years with Jesus. Paul didn't. So Paul is a second-class. Peter first, Paul second. And here's Paul saying, no guys, that's not true. It's not true because I saw the risen Christ. He spoke to me. I am a first-hand witness that Jesus Christ is not in a grave somewhere. That his lifeless body wasn't just stolen in the middle of the night. Paul is no second-rate apostle. He had the same credentials the other apostles had. That, they, that he was called and commissioned by the risen Christ. That's it. Verse 1, part C. 
who raised him from the dead. It was the risen Christ that called and commissioned Paul as his emissary to speak and to guide in his name. Certainly there can't be more we can wring out of this first verse, right? Have we met? There's one more piece to this I want us to see by way of function. It's clear that Jesus Christ is the source of Paul's authority, but it should be equally clear to us that the Apostle Paul has Jesus as the channel of his authority. It is both source and channel. This is part of what he's digging into in verse 1b, the second section, not from men nor through man but through Jesus Christ. Jesus is being sharply separated from ordinary humanity. Let me give it to you again. Paul's saying that the source and channel of his apostleship does not come as sourced from man, nor channeled through man. And that is what is different between me and him. I have a calling from God. I believe that with all that I am. And enough of you believe that, which is why I stand here on Sundays. It's why I get in your living room in moments of crisis and joy. But I don't have the channel of the resurrected Christ calling me and commissioning me. God used his people to accomplish that purpose. Paul, on the other hand, not called by ordinary men, but called by God himself. And it should be incredible to us how sharp this separation is in these few words. The Apostle Paul speaks of Jesus Christ in such contrast with humanity, that it should surprise us. Isn't Jesus human? Isn't that like Christology 101? Jesus is God and he's man. Full man, the last Adam, the second Adam, one without sin, born, not fallen. And we get into all this series of doctrines that are built and strengthened by that. Here's Paul drawing a significant contrast between mankind and between Jesus as one with the Father who raised him from the dead. Does Paul not think that Jesus was human? Oh, come on, it's not a trick question. Does Paul think Jesus isn't human? No, he knows he's human. But that's not the contention. The contention is that Paul speaks for God and that Jesus is God. I want to make sure you get this. I think there are many times in our lives, I think there are many times in our lives, especially in this youngest generation, maybe not your generation, but one you're alive with, who think 
that Jesus Christ is just legend. That, that he just, people came around and built a religion around him. They worship him, but he's probably similar to Buddha. Buddha's like a spiritual dude who had ideas and thoughts and they build a religion around what he said. Or even Confucius, if you go to the Eastern world. Do all these things in all these situations. That's how you live. Eventually you might get nirvana. In fact, when missionaries go to India and they present Jesus Christ as God, most of the population there nods and agrees. They already believe in lots of gods. So they just add Jesus in. Or they believe that God comes many times, Vishnu. And that this is just another appearance of, of God doing what he does. But I think for most of this generation, they're rejecting all organized religion as myth. Just legends. Let me see if I can make this hit, hit home. Have you all ever heard of a guy named Chuck Norris? A couple of you have heard of Chuck Norris. So, yeah, Chuck Norris, Texas Ranger. It almost becomes a title in our heads, right? That TV show was so fun and so long ago. Chuck Norris, if you're not familiar, is a karate star who turned into movie star, who turned into TV star. And about 15 years ago, when the internet became something that was really in everybody's home, it became super popular to write punchline jokes about Chuck Norris. For example, Chuck Norris can slam a revolving door. Chuck Norris has never, insert blank, right? This is a format. You can have a million. How many of you know a few Chuck Norris jokes? Raise your hands high. Look at each other and go get all those jokes. They're hilarious. But they are fundamentally grounded in an absurd hyperbolic attachment. Chuck Norris's tears cure cancer. Too bad he's never cried. You get it? Okay, less funny. I'll stop. But you take someone true who's alive in the world. I say this looking at Sydney because years ago, and this is one of the fun things families know about each other, and I'm a pastor, so I get to take what she doesn't know, put it on stage so you can know something. You're welcome. We're having a family conversation, and I say something about Chuck Norris, and Sydney goes, wait, wait, wait. You're saying that like he's a real person. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> Why do you think I shouldn't be? <laughs> well, I thought he was like Davy Crockett. <laughs> All right, strike two. Let's try this again. What about, and she goes, tell me Bruce Lee isn't real. <laughs> I love my kids. They got as much dirt on me as I got on them, but I get a pulpit. <laughs> Here's the important part. 
Many kids today think that we have Chuck Norris, Jesus of the Bible. They think, and I don't mean a few of them wonder. I mean, this is almost a decided idea in their world. That over time, the story has grown. That over time, the legend evolves. One of the most significant things about this simple introductory verse, Paul, an apostle, not from men, but by Jesus Christ. It means that Paul and Jesus were contemporaries. I can attest that famous people alive today lived because I lived as their contemporary. If the legends blew up about Tim Keller and that he was God on earth, I would be equipped to refute that. But that he was a great pastor who pastored in New York, I can attest to. I'm his contemporary. You want to know more about him 500 years from now, you can listen to this sermon that I'm giving as his contemporary to validate the historical fact of his life. I can also do that with Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris. But our kids don't believe that Jesus is what we say he is. That Jesus did what we know he did. Because it wasn't something that developed over time. Time tells us that this is true in the very first generation of the church. That there are a bunch of Jewish and non-Jewish people who are worshiping Jesus Christ who was resurrected as God. They'll have to deal with his humanity again in about 150 years. And if you want to understand heresy in the first three centuries of the church, think of it this way. How is Jesus God and man in one person and we're monotheistic? Got it? You got it? Doctrine of the Trinity, monotheism. Is the Apostle Paul no longer monotheistic? Is, does he no longer believe that there is one true and living God? He's mono. Like you're mono. I'm mono. Not that we have mono. We are mono. But it's in this first generation that Jesus Christ is understood to be God. Notice the sharp delineation. Is it hard for you to think of Jesus as God? Tell me true. Is it hard for you to think of Jesus as God? 
No. Praise God. Praise God that any true Christian hears this idea and accepts it instantly because we have believed that for a long time. Jesus is God. He's God. God called Paul. God was his source and the channel by which he was called to bear a message in God's name, in Christ's name, for the glory and beauty of God to be known and for the gospel itself to be guarded and explained. Is Paul still a monotheist? Yeah, just like I am. So what is the theological witness of this verse? What does this verse tell us about who God is? Well, I'll begin to answer that where we begin today. Who are you? Who are you? Describe yourself to someone. If you don't start the explanation of your identity with Christ as a follower of Christ, as a learner of Christ, a disciple of Christ, you're not the first ones to try and figure out this language. The youngest apostle, because he was the youngest disciple, John writes a letter, the first of three we have later on in your New Testament. In 1 John chapter 3, he's wrestling directly with the question, who are you? Who do you know yourself to be? Listen to his answer. First part of 1 John 3, verse 1a. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called Say it together. That we should be called. Who are you? Who are you? We live in a day and an age where human sexuality has taken over all conversations about identity. And it's ridiculous. You are more than your sexuality. True? Who are you? child of God. What lengths did God go to to make that true of you? To the cross. If you ever wonder how much God loves you, picture Jesus spreading out his arms, nailing them to pieces of wood, and saying this much. This much. This is what we remember. This is what we proclaim. That his body was given for you. That his blood was spilled to cover your sin. Jesus in the first generation of the church is known as prophet, priest, king. He's known as redeemer and savior. Sacrifice, altar, priest who mediates. But the most important thing we will ever know about Jesus is that he is God in a human bod. And that he used that body 
that true humanity to save us, to redeem us. That's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. Paul is an apostle, but even more than that, he's a child of God. What's the difference between Paul and a preacher and you? Less than you think. Paul is called by God, gifted by God. Is that not true of every believer in every generation? How do you come to Christ unless you're called? And what are you called to? If you're an emissary, if you're called, then someone has sent you somewhere to do something, yes? God may not always call the equipped. Some of you tremble in your chairs because you're asking the question, what if he calls me to something? Because I know that God doesn't have to call you to do easy things. Can anybody go somewhere in the scripture and show me a place where God calls somebody to do something easy? Hey, Joseph, can you pick up milk today on the way home? God has called you to that. Or does God call you to go and suffer as a slave? To be found in a pit pit? This is how the Hebrew Bible emphasizes something. It says it twice. Joseph was put in a pit pit. Like a, like a real pit. Like a very, very, very pit. And God was with him the whole way. You don't have to be called by God to pick up milk. You have to be called by God to suffer the agonies and indignities that God himself shares in. So I want you to rejoice this morning that God does not always call the equipped, but he will always equip those who are called by him. Yeah? What's your identity? Who are you? Then child of God, let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is that you have redeemed us, that you have transformed us, that you are with us, that you have made yourself known, and that we have a calling. God, teach us to be faithful, that we are children of God, and that nothing owns us more than that. Nothing describes us better than that. We are your children. Come and teach us to live in your household. Your way, not ours. Your will, not mine. May that be done. And all God's people agree.